Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. This week, we begin the story of Joseph. Um, this is my wife's favorite time of the year for getting in the portions to hear the story of Joseph and just thinking on how much we see God's plan of salvation and how he moves to bring salvation through uh, often the difficulties and trials of life and how many parallels we see with the life of Yeshua. Now this week, we will talk about Joseph some, but we're also going to talk about Judah because uh, throughout the story of Joseph, you're actually seeing uh, Joseph go through transformations and preparations for what lies ahead, but at the same time, you see uh, Judah moving through a similar process. Um, although it's almost as though his is more in the shadows than the forefront of the Joseph story. But when I was thinking about what the overall message today was about, I couldn't quite pinpoint what it was. In some aspects, it was the idea of second chances, um, but and then also tied to, it's actually a Hasidic idea that there's descent for the sake of ascent. So there's a, re, a purpose of going down for the purpose of being brought up, okay? And I was thinking about in, in these terms, it's like sometimes the descent we go in can seem to be a direct result of uh, something that we've done that's brought us down and that then we have to deal with. And other times, it uh, maybe perhaps we weren't at fault and we went down, but then how do we respond even in that scenario? So I was thinking about it too as a way of framing it would be like after the fall, what next, right? Um, and so the fall being whatever tragedy or trial that we come along, then what comes after that? And, and how do we approach it? Um, so with beginning to kind of introduce those, those ideas, um, sometimes you may have heard of uh, the kingdom being an upside down kingdom where you know, the last is first, where things don't... Uh, don't necessarily go exactly the way you would think. You know, Yeshua talks about how the low will be lifted up and exalted. The humble will be those who receive the kingdom. And so he says in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So you see the turn of events. Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so within these two things, it's, uh, you know, the outcome might be a little bit different than what you would expect. And one of the things that was standing out to me in that is how God's hand is upon us to bring about His will and His purposes. And as I was considering that this morning, the thought of God bringing death and bringing life and how the order of that statement, God causes death but brings to life, is outside, even outside of the norm of what thought would be because first you're born before you die. But when we say that he causes death and brings life, he's bringing the reversal. He's taking the, the death of something and then bringing forth life. And where this is quoted in the scripture is in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And it comes from the time of Hannah. So if you remember the story, uh, Hannah, okay, so Hannah's husband is Elkanah, I believe, and he is a descendant of Ephraim, so he's a descendant of, of Joseph, and he has two wives, and one of his wives has children, but then Hannah does not have children, and she, even though he, you know, the scripture says that he loves her and he gives her a double portion whenever they go up to, to the house of the Lord, um, but yet still she has 
shame and she is still afflicted by her essentially sister, right? Not, not sister, but the other wife. And so she prays for a son and God gives her a son. He opens her womb. She receives Samuel. And then she offers up a prayer, her song of thanksgiving to the Lord. And in this prayer, she starts out saying, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There was no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. And then she continues on and here in verse 6, she says, The Lord causes death and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. And so within this, again, it's the God brings the change. He brings life where there had been death. He opens wombs that had been closed. And all along the way, when there are these trials, they're for a purpose. We may not understand what those purposes are along the way, but God is forming and fashioning his people into the, into the character that he wants them to be. Um, you know, I, when I was thinking on this very topic, you know, and what, what I just said, it's the same thing we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. It's the aspect of becoming. And I was like, man, Am I going to get off this topic? <laughs> Are we just going to stay on the idea of becoming who God is calling us to be? But, but that's what we see in the life of Joseph and in the life of Judah. They have to go through trials and difficulties along the way so that their character can be formed, so that they can then move into the roles that God has for them, for Joseph to rise up in leadership and to be a savior for his brothers, and then for Judah to move into a place of deserving royalty and the scepter that would not depart from him. And so, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Hasidic view is that there's descent for the sake of ascent. And the idea is that setbacks are setups for a comeback. Setbacks are set up for a comeback. And the reason that the fall occurs is for the ability to arise. All right. And so I want to start out, we'll talk about, we'll start out talking about Joseph, and then that will work us into uh, a story about Judah as, as we follow through this week's portion. Um, let's go to oh, Genesis 37, how about that? Genesis 37. So... Joseph has come and he's settled in the land. I mean, Jacob has come and he's settled in the land. And, you know, Rashi comments that when the scripture says that he settled in the land, he was really looking for tranquility. Here he had been up working for Laban for 20 years, doing hard service for him, overcoming the deception that Laban was perpetrating upon him while he himself walked in righteousness. He comes back to the land and then encounters trials with what occurred at Shechem with his daughter and with the people of Shechem. And also in dealing with the death of Rachel. And so he settles in the land of Canaan, but yet his difficulty was not over. And the sages look at this and say that he wasn't able to dwell in tranquility because his mission was not yet accomplished. There was still more to be done. And you know, when, when we think about that, it's like, well, I sure would like to accomplish the mission in tranquility. <laughs> and you know, more like walking through the park instead of climbing over mountains, right? But oftentimes, we have to go through the challenges along the way as the mission's being accomplished. And that's what we see again 
coming upon Jacob in this time, in this portion, where we see the loss of his son Joseph. So, so you, you're probably familiar with the story where Joseph is the youngest of 11, well, actually of 12 brothers at this point, but um, 11 that had been born up in Laban's area. And so now Joseph is bringing back evil reports of his brothers, and his brothers do not like it. And they also don't like that Joseph is the, is the favored son, having received a fine cloak from his father and being chosen as the firstborn, even though there were many who were born before him, but he was the firstborn of Rachel. So his brothers are jealous of him, and the scripture says that they could not speak to him peaceably. He told them dreams of his, of his coming ascendancy and that they would be subservient to him, and they hated him all the more. Now, there came a time when Jacob was going to send Joseph to check on the well-being of his brothers. And that's what we're here in Genesis 37. We're going to read starting in verse 12. We'll go ahead and read through the whole story here. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to, the, to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he, and he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, so his brothers go through a progression of how they can deal with the problem of Joseph, right? Their first thing is, is he's heading towards them, and they say, okay, let's kill him and get rid of him. But then Reuben intercedes in hopes of saving him out of his brother's hands and has him thrown into the pit. And within this story, right, Joseph is thrown, we don't get a lot of, we don't get a lot of details here in the scripture of what was taking place, 
But you can imagine what may have been going on in this whole exchange, right? Because Joseph is stripped of his tunic, thrown into the pit. They sit down to eat food, right? And we don't get any of the discourse that occurred between the brothers. Like Joseph saying, why are you doing this? But that had to be taking place. <laughs> you know, and, and then um, there's various stories in tradition in the Midrash of what was taking place. And there's one that I, I, uh, I want to relay because it gives a, well, it gives a further parallel of the life of Yeshua. So, you know, I, I talk about how there's so many parallels between the story of Joseph here and the life of Yeshua that are shown to us about the, the path and the process by which God raises up a Savior. When Joseph's father sent him to check on the well-being of his brothers in Shechem, um, the sages say that he was knowingly sent, sending Joseph into a dangerous situation. Because the, the brothers' feelings towards Joseph and Joseph having exalted himself in their midst was, was no secret, you know. Uh, Jacob knew that there were troubles. And in the scripture, it says that he sent him from the valley, from the depths of Hebron, to go check on his brothers. Now, Hebron is on a mountain. So to, for the scriptures to say he sent him from the depths of Hebron makes us first begin to ask a question of, well, what's this really talking about? And so some say that he was sent from uh, the cave at Machpelah, right, from, from the burial place of Abraham and um, Isaac. But he was sent on a dangerous mission to a place that had a history of bloodshed. Because right? that's what we had seen in, the, in last week's portion, the brothers striking down all the people of Shechem. It had been a place of strife and conflict, and now he's saying, go and check on the well-being of your brothers. And Joseph's response was, here I am. You know, hineni, send me. And the concept that the sages speak about is that, is that Joseph knew he was going into that dangerous situation, but that he was willing to go at the request of his father. So he goes, putting his life on the line to check on the well-being of his brothers and of the flock. Right? His brothers could be symbolizing the leadership of Israel and the flock being the people of Israel. Just as Yeshua being sent at the Father's will to go and check on the well-being of his brothers and of the flock. And knowing that it was a dangerous situation going into a place where those who, well, he who would come and bring the light into darkness could be one that was hated by his brothers. And just as Joseph was hated by his brothers and cast in a pit, sold to foreigners, so too Yeshua was sold to foreigners and offered up and ultimately descended into Sheol, right? So we have that, we have that picture. And Yeshua knew, he knew what was on the line when he came. And by the time that he had made his triumphal entry, he knew what his destiny was going to be, right? That his day had come, that he was going to be turned over. And yet he continued on his path. And one of the things that he said is in Matthew 25. Probably should have pulled it up for you on the screen, but Matthew 25 this is after the triumphal entry, um, and I don't know if it was the day before his arrest or before their, the day of the Passover, but he's speaking about the return of the Son of Man and what it will be like in those days. And he says, this is Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Right? Now, why do I read that? I read that because within, the, within tradition, there is a story of Joseph speaking to his brothers from the pit after they threw him in. And I want to read that here. I'm pulling this from uh, the book of Jasher. The book of Jasher uh, has a lot of traditional stories in it that very much line up with various other uh, midrash and traditions uh, throughout the Jewish history. And this is in Jasher 41, starting in verse 27. This says, And when Joseph came to his brothers, he sat before them, and they rose upon him and seized him, smote him to the earth and stripped the coat of many colors which he had on. And they took him and cast him into a pit. And in the pit there was no water but serpents and scorpions. Joseph, okay, so then I'm going to skip forward. Joseph called out from the pit to his brothers and said to them, What have I done unto you, and in what have I sinned? Why do you not fear the Lord concerning me? Am I not of your bones and flesh? And is not Jacob your father my father? Why do you do this thing to me this day, and how will you be able to look upon our father Jacob? He continued to cry out and call unto his brethren from the pit. And he said, O Judah, Simeon, and Levi, my brothers, lift me up from the place of darkness in which you have placed me, and come this day to have compassion on me, you children of the Lord and sons of Jacob my father. And if I have sinned unto you, are you not the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If they saw an orphan, they had compassion on him, or one that was hungry, they gave him bread to eat. Or one that was thirsty, they gave him water to drink. Or one that was naked, they covered him with garments. And how then will you withhold your pity from your brother? For I am of your flesh and bones. If I have sinned unto you, surely you will do this on account of my father. Joseph spoke these words from the pit, and his brothers could not listen to him, nor incline their ears to hear the words of Joseph. And Joseph was crying and weeping in the pit. Now I find that really interesting, right? that there would be such a strong parallel to be, between what the tradition was of what Joseph said from the pit to his brothers and the reasoning for why they would have compassion on him because they would have learned it from their father, Jacob, right? And now here's Yeshua, mere days from the time when his brothers would take him and offer him up out of hatred and not listen to his call of repentance and of love for one another and faithfulness towards God, calling on them to act according to the words of Torah and what had been re revealed by, the, by their fathers. And then when he says this, so I think in their minds there had to be this connection of saying, hang on, he's talking about the Son of Man coming in His glory and then sitting on the throne and from the throne saying this to the righteous, you did these things. The righteous respond to this call, right? And then he says, to the extent you did it to one of the brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Even just crying out, saying, remember what they did to one of their brothers, even the least of them, and act accordingly. Turn from this path that you're on and instead clothe the needy and act in compassion and love for your brother. See, even then, calling out for this chance for the heart to turn, right? But then again, in some ways, even declaring, Yeshua even making a statement that he is the king, the Messiah son of Joseph, the suffering servant, through whom would come salvation to the people. And so... They didn't listen, right? 
And originally their idea was to kill him. Reuben interceded, so they threw him in a pit, and now they're deliberating over what they're going to do while they're sitting at lunch. And according to tradition, they were discussing their, their two options of, well, either we let him die in the pit, or we, we lift him up and we bring him back, right? And in the midst of that, they see the Ishmaelite traders coming, and, Ju and Judah says, let's sell him. Okay, so he comes up with an in-between solution. Now, ideally, he would have said, let's just bring him back home. Right, but he comes up with an in-between solution, and, and then his brothers agree to it. And because, because he came up with the solution and his brothers agreed to it, he is given credit for the sale of Joseph. Now, granted, all his brothers were responsible in it, but Judah, given the first and foremost of the responsibility in it, so they sell him, and it's really unclear in Scripture as to who sold him. This has been a debate among the sages of, did the brothers lift him out of the pit and sell him? Or did the, the Midianite traders who were passing by lift him out of the pit and then sell him to the Ishmaelites? Anyway, there's, there's various theories because the Scripture is not clear. It, it leaves the door open to the idea that his brothers may not have sold him, but regardless, they're viewed as being responsible for his selling, whether they were directly involved or indirectly involved in the sale. And so, so they sell him, and then they come back, and to convince their father that he's dead, they kill a goat and take its blood, and they put it upon his garment, and they bring it to their father. And they say, identify if you please, is this your son's tunic or not? And so that's, that's how Jacob sees, and, and from that, he says that he's going to go down to the grave mourning for his son because no one could comfort him for the loss that he had of his son Joseph. Okay, so the next thing that happens here in verse 36 of Genesis 37, after it says that Jacob was bewailing him, says they sold the, the Medanites sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, a courtier of Pharaoh, the chamberlain of the butchers. Now, if you jump forward to chapter 39, the story picks right up where that left off and says Joseph had been brought down to Egypt to Potiphar, and it goes in continuing the storyline of Joseph. But the scripture does not, the scripture interjects an entire story here in Genesis 38. That, uh, that tells us a story about what happens to Judah after the sale of Joseph and after the deception of his father. And in, in 38.1, Genesis 38.1, the scripture says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And then it begins to tell the story of how he took a wife and had three children and goes into a story of um, how his two oldest children died because they acted wickedly before the Lord. And, but what stands out to the sages that they comment on in this is the scripture says it was at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. Okay, he went down from his brothers and they tie this going down to what Jacob said two sentences earlier, you know, two verses earlier. He said, I will go down to the grave mourning for my son. And so they connect these two and they say, because of Jacob's intense mourning, Judah's esteem before his brothers went down. Because his brother said, look what you brought upon our father. It's kind of that whole thing where we talked about it, I think, a couple weeks ago, where you say, you start to rationalize your, your participation in something and begin to say, well, your, your behavior was worse than mine. They were all guilty in the midst of this, right? But Judah, having had the idea, received uh, more condemnation from the brothers for it, and so he lost his position of leadership from them. He'd gone down in their sight, and now we see the story that he continues on. And within this story... He goes and he receives double 
for what he brought to his father, right? He loses his first two sons, whereas he had deceived his father and, and taken Joseph from him. So now Judah is reaping difficulty that has come from what he himself has brought forth. Now in this, right, his oldest son marries but dies without a child. And so then he tells his second son to step into his brother's place and perform yibum, which is leveret marriage, to where he could bring forth a son for his brother who's died. But that brother is not willing to bring forth a spiritual son for his brother. He acts wickedly and he too dies. And now from Judah's perspective, he's looking at this and saying, well, I think Tamar just kills her husbands. <laughs> so I'm not going to give her this third child. Instead, I'm going to withhold the third child from her. And we know from this story that Tamar becomes aware that she is not going to be given the third son. And so she takes it upon herself to trick Judah into fathering a child who will then be the spiritual descendant of Er, her first husband, and also the offspring of Judah. And so when, he, when the trick comes into play is in Genesis 38, um, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. She says, What will you give me if you consort with me? And he replied, I will, I will send you a kid of the goats from the flock. And she said, Provided you leave a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet, your wrap, and your staff that is in your hand. And he gave them to her and consorted with her, and she conceived by him. And then three months go by. Okay. Three months go by. And it's found out that she is with child. And, and so the, the only thought that people have is that she's done it uh, outside of wedlock. And that uh, and Judah determines that her penalty would be to be burned. That she'd be put to death for her behavior. And then in Genesis 38, 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. All right, so what's happening here are some really interesting parallels with the story that happened back with the sale of Joseph and with the deception of Judah's father. Because when he's going to tell Jacob that Joseph is dead, he takes a goat and slaughters it takes the blood and puts it on Joseph's coat, which would be a way of identifying positively who, who it was that had been lost in this, who, who was implicated in this. And so then he comes to his father and he puts it in front of him and says, identify if you please, whose, whose cloak is this? And now here he is in this story with Tamar and, he's, and he offers her a goat so now a goat's introduced into the story. Okay. And then she, sa she says, well, give me a, a pledge until you give me the goat. And so he gives three things that clearly identify who he is. The signet, the cord, and the staff. And so then she brings forth to him and says, identify if you please whose are these very identifying objects. So it's the exact same question placed to Judah now that he'd placed before his father. And in that moment, Judah recognized. That's what the scripture says in, in Genesis 38, 26. It says, Judah recognized. And I wonder if his recognition went beyond just, hey, I recognize that those are my things, and yeah, this, I'm, I'm found out. Or if he recognized this is connected to the deception of, that I gave to my father when I said, Identify now, if you would please, whose garment does this belong to? And so now he's faced with a choice. What does he do? Does he admit it? Or does he try to hide it? What's he going to do? He's clearly fallen. He's clearly come upon hard times. And what his response is, is she is right. 
it is from me. Inasmuch as I did not give her to Shayla, my son. Right? So he, he comes clean and says, no, it's, she's in the right. I'm in the wrong. Those are mine. And it's because I did her wrong. And so this was, this was a significant transition turning point for him when he had come to the point of saying, no, I was wrong. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to hide it. I'm realizing, I'm recognizing the depth of the sin that I have walked in that has brought me to this place where now I've been lowered in my brother's eyes. And in, in fact, in some form, he was in exile, right? Because the scripture said that he went down from his brothers. He was, he was gone away from them. And in this time, now he loses two children. He's realizing what this loss feels like. And now he's got open shame. And he says, no, I'm going to, after the fall, what am I going to do? I'm not going to believe that I've been brought low so that I will keep going lower and be destroyed. Instead, I believe that this can be turned around and that the descent is for an ascent that is to come. And so he, this becomes the turning point. Because from here, what happens? He is restored unto his brothers. He begins to walk uprightly and to seek the welfare of his brothers, which we'll read in subsequent portions, right? When he goes and offers his, well, he, this is, I don't know if this is this, I think it's two weeks from now. When he offers his children as surety that he will bring Benjamin back, you know? Actually, no, no sorry, that was Reuben that offered his children getting my story mixed up. I need to read ahead so that I can tell these stories better. <laughs> um, but, it, but, but Judah offers himself as surety for, for Benjamin. And then Jacob says, yes, you can go. And then we see Judah standing boldly for his brother, interceding for him, offering himself before Joseph in place of Benjamin. But he's got, I think it took him going low to then be prepared for the person who would stand in the face of anything and be willing to lay himself down to actually become the one to whom the scepter would be given and the one to whom the scepter would not depart from his children, right? And the, and the rulership that would come from him. So it's, you know, so this story, Judah's having a turning point. And Joseph's going through a turning point as well, right? We talked about how he was turned over by his brothers and how his brothers sold him into slavery. Now, we can't say that Joseph was totally innocent in all of it as well because he did exalt himself over his brothers and didn't walk humbly before them. But within this, Joseph's going through his trials and walking in faithfulness before the Lord at each step of the way, and God is clearly with him. Now, his story didn't end, right? So we, we took a detour and, and stopped to talk about Judah and his descent, but then his turning point. And then we come to Joseph, and it looks like he's beginning, beginning to have a turning point as we go into Genesis 39, because when he comes down to Egypt, he's sold into the house of Potiphar. And... In the house of Potiphar, he became successful. God was with him. He caused him to prosper to the point that everything in Potiphar's house was put under Joseph. So he was over the whole household. And, and while he was there, being in charge of everything, his master's wife begins to attempt to seduce him and asking him to lie with her. But, but Joseph continually refused. And what he says is, Look, with me here, my master concerns himself about nothing in the house. And whatever he has, he has, he placed in my custody. There was no one greater in this house than I. And he has denied me nothing but you, since you are his wife. How then can I perpetrate this great evil and have sinned against God? Right? So essentially, in a way, she's the forbidden fruit right? within Potiphar's house. He's like, Look, everything in this house is yours, you're over everything, but not my wife. And Joseph knows that, and he says, no, I will not 
I will not betray my master and I will not betray my God and I'm, I will walk uprightly before him. But then we see that even though he's attempting to walk in righteousness, he still comes into trouble. So we'll read here in Genesis 39, starting in verse 10. And as soon as she spoke to Joseph day after day, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, servant whom you have brought among us came into in me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way that your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So within that story, what do we see happen? We see Joseph once again, essentially second in the household. Because even in his household with Jacob, he had the position of the firstborn. He was given the, the coat that signified leadership, that signified that he was the chosen one. And now he's in Potiphar's house, and he's the second one in charge of the house. And his garment is stripped from him again. Just as his brothers took the garment from him and used it as testimony about him, so did Potiphar's wife strip the garment of him and then present it as evidence to falsely accuse him and have him once again thrown into a pit. Now the scripture here said that he was thrown into prison, right? Which is a different word than thrown into a pit. However, next week when we read in the portion, um, actually, no, no, it's this week. Even this week when he is talking to the uh, chamberlain of the cupbearers and the chamberlain, or the, uh, the, uh, the cupbearer and the baker, he says that I've been thrown into this pit using the same word that the scripture used for the pit that he was thrown in. And then in next week's portion, it continues talking about Joseph being in the pit. So you have a complete parallel that's happening here. So now he's, he's kind of reliving the same tragedy where here God's favor is upon him, but yet he's accused, stripped of his garment, stripped of his position, and thrown into the pit, having lost it all. But then once again, God shows him favor and causes him to rise up to be number two in charge of the prison. <laughs> God's hand was on him at, at each step of the way, right? And so even in this case, in this case, he had done nothing to deserve being put into the prison but he was being laid low. He was being brought down for the purpose of being raised up. God was going to use this as the way that he would bring him before Pharaoh. But there was just a, a time that he was going to have to endure in this along the way. And it was, uh, according to tradition, it was 12 years that he was in the prison awaiting coming out. So he was 17 when he was sold into slavery he served a year in Potiphar's house and then was 12 years in the prison before he's brought up before Pharaoh, as we'll read next week. But within this time, everywhere he went, God caused him to succeed. And where he went, he walked in faithfulness to God, all the while trusting in the Lord, not allowing 
his circumstances to dictate what his faith would be or what his behavior would be. Just as Jacob in Laban's house labored, labored for 20 years under deception, under uh, trickery that Laban was bringing upon him, yet he walked in righteousness, Joseph continued the same. And that set the scene for him being raised up and being prepared and made ready to be one who would rule over all of Egypt and ultimately be the one who would bring salvation to his brothers. Right? After the long exile. So within, within this, there's the aspect of there's transitions of hope to despair. There's rising and there's falling. But the falling isn't the end. In the hands of God, the, the falling can actually be used for the purpose of setting up a comeback, setting up a reversal by God's hand that will bring about a change. And the question is, what are we going to do in the midst of those trials and difficulties along the way when we have a descent, whether it's by our hand or by someone else's? What's the attitude of our heart going to be? What's the action that's going to come forth from us? And as I was thinking on that, I was thinking of Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. Actually, 7 through 9. He says, But I, I will watch for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will arise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord is my light. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will behold his righteousness. Though I have fallen, I will arise. And though I sit in darkness, the Lord is my light, and I will behold his righteousness. You know, in uh, the scriptures say, there are many thoughts in a man's heart, but the Lord directs his steps, right? We may plan our way, but God directs our steps. So in the midst of it all, in the midst of our paths, we can have confidence that God is with us, ready to walk alongside us, and when we're confronted with the challenge of what is the sin that I have sinned against him or against others, may we be quick to say, the Lord is right, it's from me. But I will turn and I will repent and I will walk in his ways and he, he will bring righteousness and judgment for me on my behalf. So as we go through and we have our second chances, May we choose to walk uprightly, to face it head on, and to continue to go forward, becoming the people that God has called us to be. Amen. Does anybody have anything that you wanted to share? I just wanted to say I, I loved your detour on Judah, because like when, I, like Heather, I love the Joseph story, and I love that you went on that, and there, I just can't help but um, recognize going through his journey, a lot of parallels to your message last week about um, Jacob and, you know, being called, called Israel and how God has restoration, and just because you have one identity, it's not always your identity, and Judah, same thing, like he fell into this identity of, um, and, and anyways, he came out of it, and so I just, I, I saw those parallels, and I thought that was really cool. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's the whole thing. It's when we fall, that's not the end. It doesn't have to be the end, you know. And so that's, that's the whole thing where it's the becoming, right? And I was like, am I saying the same thing again? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, something just struck me, and I, I read this this week, and I did not see this. Um, but even after uh, Joseph interpreted the dream for the cupbearer and the baker. He asked the cupbearer to please remember him. Mm -hmm. and, and two years went by. I mean, the cupbearer did not remember him. And two years went by before Pharaoh had a dream. And what I got out of that is that believers cannot depend on human beings to meet their needs. Um, 
and that obviously it was not God's plan to have Joseph out of prison at that time. Mm -hmm. And so often that when we get in a situation, um, I do anyway, I'll go, okay, I missed it, God. What did I do wrong? You know, where, where I, am I in this? And I think the main thing to remember is that human beings are always going to disappoint us. Even the ones who love us, even the ones that, um, you know, that want the best for us, but they're human beings and they're going to disappoint us. And so I just thought that was really interesting. It's the first time that I saw that, that um, Jesus, uh, Joseph wanted him to remember him, mm -hmm. but it wasn't in God's timing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that, that's excellent. And, you know, um, the, the sages picked up on the same thing that, that, you, that you picked up on this morning with that, in that uh, they say that it's very much the aspect of we, we, we're not to rely on man, but to rely on God. And so there's a critique of Joseph in asking for that because God's favor was clearly upon him with his position and what was happening. And so trusting in God was ultimately the thing that he should do. Um, and, uh, but yeah, he asked for man's help. And like, no, man's help is not what you need right now. You need God's perfect timing, and you need God as your deliverer, just as he's been with you all these years. Yes. <clears throat> uh, Chris, there is a nuance in which um, when Joseph is pushing back on Potiphar's wife when she's making her moves, and there is an area in which uh, he is uh, witnessing and attesting to the Lord's presence when he says, uh, if your husband were here, my master, we're here. You would not even think of uh, doing this because he is there, the seeing eye. Well, my God is all seeing all the time, 100% of the time. So how do you expect me to uh, give in to your guiles that you're saying? So that was a form that he, he was witnessing to her. Mm -hmm. In a way, my God sees all. Uh -huh. So if you would not do it in front of you, who's a mere man, how am I going to do this in front of my God, who is God? Right. Yeah, and no, that's very good. It's like, to him, you're right. He was saying, if your master was here, you wouldn't do that. My master is here. I will not do that. Yeah, that's really cool. I like how Laura mentioned the, the, how you addressed the kind of the, the detour that it took into Judah's story. Every time I've read that portion, I'm like, this is an awkward place to stick that story. <laughs> But you made exact perfect, like, the way you explained it. I mean, it makes, then it makes perfect sense of why it's, it's placed that way, right? Um, so thank you for explaining that. Um, and then you were talking about how Yosef's life is a reflection, a mirror of the master's life. Um, and I couldn't help but think of when he was in the pit and his brothers were eating. It, there's nothing like when you're suffering and people are just enjoying their time like in your presence or, you know, before you or in close proximity. And I thought of the master on the cross and the Roman soldiers are there like gambling for pieces of clothes. I mean, and I'm not trying to say that the Roman soldiers are a metaphor for the brothers. I'm just saying that that, that whole like you're suffering and in the midst of your stuffing, there's people having fun. Right. right. Yeah. It just makes you feel even worse. Um, and then also the, the parable when the, when the master's talking about the, the, the master of the house and he sends out his son and then right and then they kill his or he sends out servants and they kill the uh -huh. servants so automatically you know that's a dangerous area then he sends his son so kind of like the whole image of sending Yosef into dangerous ground mm -hmm. right and that parallel too um, and then something uh, deception that just came to my mind during during this lesson in in, in the story of Abraham we see how he deceived to protect life, and God came through for him, right? Like God came to Pharaoh and said, you will not touch this woman and you will bring her back, right? But then we see Yaakov used deception for gain and it didn't pay off and it, mm -hmm. it actually turned back on him through Levon, right? And then we see um, how Yudah does, you know, uses deception for his gain and it comes back on him, right? right? And so we see how deception can be used to protect life and God will come through. And then we see how deception is used for personal gain, kind of like, you know, like when they were knocking down, you know, German doors saying, do you have any Jews? And if they lied to protect life, right, 
then that that God saw the, that as merit, yes. right? Um, and then deceiving for personal gain obviously doesn't fly. Um, but that's I was just seeing this deception story kind of like played out and how the different aspects of it. I even and then also with Yehuda and Yosef, I saw them as kind of like two sides of the coin, right? One you walk into un, you walk into unrighteousness and then, re, but God is still faithful, and you repent and He's right there for you, right? Right, but then. You can be the type of person who is constantly walking in righteousness before God, and you will get the favor of God in your life, right? So it's just like whether you turn away or you're always walking with God, as long as you come back, right? Come, I mean, coming back is, is the key, just always being with God. Yes. And uh, I, I guess the phrase there was, um, he is faithful even when we are not faithful. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's the whole thing is it's, it's, it's never over. Right? It's God's always with open arms for you to return to Him so that you can have that restoration. Yeah, amen. I just wanted to mention, uh, you know, the detour with Judah and Tamar. Uh, I mean, from Tamar's twins comes Messiah, right. you know? And so we might look at that story as what a weird story. It's kind of, I mean, it is, but... Uh, <laughs> But I read this book on by Francine Rivers, and it kind of gives a backstory of some of the women who God's turned their life, where basically, you know, she marries Judah's son. He's wicked. He doesn't want to uh, give seed, and he, he dies off. And then the second one, and then she's to wait for the third one to be a redeemer and is just kind of left as somebody who has nothing to her name, is back in her, you know, it's, kind of, it's shameful. It's very shameful. But for her to do what she did was obviously scary right um if she had the she would have died you know but i think that the lord gave her that divine wisdom what to do you know and it shows even in judah's house um and judah by judah marrying an adulamite who probably didn't have the torah and do all the things like that you know it showed tamer's tamar's righteousness and her um, trust in in god to to redeem her and through what she did she was blessed her womb was open and then through that, Messiah comes. So yeah. I just thought this was really cool because um, that's just, you know, important. And, just, and, and, and it's, it's put there also with Yosef just giving that parallel of Yeshua as well, you know, who goes into the pit and we believe he's dead, right, only to come back as a redeemer, uh -huh. you know. And, and for his dad to have that dream and that hope, just like Mary, to have that, I thought he was supposed to redeem us. You know, I'm, I, I have this hope underneath that he's going to come back and he's just hoping, right? Even though he is crying, but he's but like we are, we're hoping for Yeshua to come back and he is, right? But there's that suffering and that time that we have to wait. Um, but I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Also, too, um, sorry. Uh, after the reconciliation of the brothers, uh, Joseph tells them that they're, what they intended uh, for wrong, God intended it for the good. Right. So this entire time, uh, although there might be some emotional or psychological or uh, you know a negative perception of circumstances, uh, Joseph is, is you know trusting in God is is having this having this, to see the it's seen everything playing out within God's purpose. Uh, so he doesn't see his struggle as independent, has uh, independent from God's divine will. Uh, he sees his struggle as part of his divine plan, mm -hmm. uh, and within that there is peace, there is joy, there is understanding, uh, there is the ability to trust. Because uh, you know, often we see ourselves, you know, if something is going wrong in my life, in terms of circumstances, then it must be that I did something wrong. But it's not always the case, right. you know. So in, in, in that state, there's guilt, there is uh, you know lack of uh, uh, lack of self-esteem, there is you know uh, self-judgment, uh, uh, judgment of others, because we think that our negative circumstances somehow came as a result of our own action. Uh, but in, in many cases, like in Joseph, he's seeing a divine plan within everything, you know, uh, when his brother being sell thrown into the pit. Uh, you know, Potiphar accusing him. Uh, all these things, he, although the, all these circumstances have his own emotions, 
and, and psychological impact, he's, he's rising above those things and saying, no, this is also part of God's plan. And, and, and I'm trusting that I will get to the place where he told me I was going to get, which is, you know, my brother's uh, the dream where his brother bowed down to him and he's saving uh, his people, etc. So everything is, is, everything is the Lord. You know, there is no separation between, you know, oh, well, you know, again, my circumstances and what God has for me. And, and this is this constant struggle. But everything is God. Everything is from him. Everything he does is for his, uh, for his divine plan. Everything is for good at the end. Uh, we can all attest that rough time created, you know, it, it, you know builds our characters and, and our strength in the way that how we deal with the next challenges. You know, sometimes we, the challenges are repeated and, and we overcome because we have already been there. Uh, you know, so all these things, I see Joseph struggle and is, you know, him realizing, you know, yeah, this is hard, but uh, at the end, God has a plan you know, and he will come through. So I just have a question uh, that I, I don't know how I haven't picked up on this on 40 years of reading the story. Um, but I just noticed that, um, of course, I, I start to look for patterns. Uh, and there's always a story behind the story, behind the story, behind the story. Um, but it was his tunic that, you know, in, in both of these stories, it was his tunic that was used as testimony to identify his, who he was, which led him to his descent, uh -huh. both in the pit and then in Potiphar's house. I just didn't know if there was anything behind that or yeah. what the purpose or meaning, because there has to be. There if it's mentioned more than once, yeah. then there has to be. And so I, don't worry, we're about to, you're about to make your announcements and do all stuff like that. But I don't want to get, I don't want to kind of open up another, but it was just, it just like, I was reading, reading that this morning. It's like, okay, this happens more than once. There's a purpose behind yeah. this. And so it's just, I wanted to bring that up because okay. I don't know. Yeah, so. no, it's, that's, it's great. And yes, it, it, it happened before. Uh -huh. Okay, and so if you, if you go back to Jacob's deception of Isaac, what does he prepare, or what does his mom prepare? Kids, goats, to bring in there. And what does she put on him? Esau's cloak. Esau's garment. So then he goes in with goats before his father, and his father says, who are you? He's identifying him, and he's identifying him as Esau, because of the garment. And so that deception then began to echo further with uh, difficulty for, for the brothers, right? And uh, there are so many of those kinds of echoes throughout the scripture of repeats of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, even... even uh, Within the story that we read today, when, when, uh, when they bring the coat to Jacob and Jacob says, surely my son has been torn to pieces, he says, Toroph, uh, Toroph, okay, which is like that's the surely he's been torn, okay. Well, within that, there's two teraf, okay, there's a Toroph, Toroph, you have Toroph, and then the same word just translate a little differently. Well, in Hebrew, if you take two of something and you combine it to say plural, you put im on the end. So it'd be teraphim. Okay, well, what did Rachel steal from Laban's house? She sold teraphim. And teraphim has no meaning. So it's when you read the word teraphim, it's thought to be the idols. But the scripture could have called those idols, but they called them teraphim. And now the aspect of the teraphim is now being played out in the story of Joseph. And then the Ishmaelites are coming from Gilead, okay, which is the place where Laban and Jacob had encountered one another and made their promise not to come against each other, where Laban was going to come and attack Jacob. Right? And so you've got all these inner, I mean, wow, incredibly interwoven stories. But what you see is the echoes of this playing out. So that deception led to, ultimately had a tie, the, le the deception of, of Isaac and then the deception even of Laban, both tied into what was happening with the brothers 
and the exile. And so, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. So, but okay, we do have to wrap up. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we bless you and thank you for your goodness. Thank you for uh, just your desire to reveal your plans and purposes to us. And thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful even when we are faithless, Lord, that you continue to seek and to save that which was lost. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would equip us, Lord, that we would not uh, despair when we fall, but rather we would, we would say that, Lord, you are preparing us to arise. May we just look to you, call on you, and trust in you to be our deliverer, our redeemer, and our savior. Lord, we bless you and, and thank you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.